you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 with me this morning. And I'm going to read some of the most, if not the most familiar words you have probably ever heard around religion and Christendom. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. I'm only going to speak about verse 16. And I will do my best to watch the clock and finish approximately on time. You have seen a lot of the verses of the songs. This video was specifically chosen because the idea was the greatest of all time. And I would submit to you, if you have a bulletin and the outline is there, it's, I would say this is the greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16. But I would follow that up by saying it's still better than you could ever imagine. And so let me read as John the Apostle records this interaction between Jesus and this teacher of the law, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, it blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light came into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So I would submit to you this morning that John 3.16 is the greatest verse in the Bible. But I would have those that would disagree with me. If I even ask the question, what is the most important book in the entire, first Bible verse in the entire Bible, some might say it's actually Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. The Bible doesn't even prove or attempt to prove God existed. It assumes it. In the beginning, God created. Others would say it must be Exodus 20, because that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. Others would say, no, 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 especially in our modern era, that it has to be Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's what everybody loves, especially with all those passages on peace. Maybe some creationists and others would say, no, no, it's Psalm 19, that the the Son and creation declare the glories of God. And some would argue for the popularity and the quoting of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, if you're inside this room or downstairs this morning and you claim to be a Christian, it is something that we seem predisposed to do. We all have what we call as our favorite verse in the Bible, or some of you might even say, I've got a life verse, right? Some of you got that go-to verse. But what is truly the greatest verse in the entire Bible? Well, In our modern era, especially in the Western world, we seem to love John 3.16, don't we? Now, I think when I said it, I'd be shocked if anyone in here had never heard it before because we learn it, we memorize it, we sing songs about it. Let's be honest, we put it on posters, coffee mugs, t-shirts, and especially signs. You'll see this verse at hockey games, as you see here on the screen. You'll see it at football games and baseball games and basketball games. Name your gathered group and you'll see someone with that sign. In fact, often it doesn't even need to have the John 3.16. It can just say 3 colon 16 and everybody knows what you're talking about. You see it everywhere. I've seen it at parades. Heck, I've even seen it at a theater. People even tattoo it on themselves. That's not either an indictment or a promotion of tattoos. And yet, despite the popularity of John 3.16, one commentator puts it like this. Not only is this undoubtedly the best known verse in the New Testament, it's probably the most distorted verse as well. Why? Is it, it is because people who love the apparent universality of it, for God so loved the world, hate the undeniable particularity of it you got to believe in Jesus. But what do you really understand about this verse? Really, collectively as a group, as individuals and as a group of Christians, those of you who claim to be a Christian, when was the last time you really gave some honest thought to what Jesus is saying to you in John 3.16? And I have to confess as I tell you this, this is the first time, I've been a pastor now over 20 years, this is my first time preaching John 3.16. And I say that in public confession because it's been too long. And I have been absolutely overwhelmed at what I have discovered in studying this verse anew. I have known this verse since I was a child. I want to be like D.L. Moody. 
D.L. Moody said that this verse brought him to an understanding of the love of God like he had never encountered. And he explained it through an encounter with a young English preacher named Henry Morehouse. Henry Morehouse was the kind of preacher that just couldn't move on till he believed he and his audience had gotten the passage. And so as they met in England, Moody told the young preacher if he ever made it to Chicago, he'd let him preach at his church in Chicago, truthfully never thinking Morehouse would ever get across the, the ocean. Well, to Moody's chagrin, he gets a telegram that Mr. Morehouse has crossed the ocean, is in Chicago, plans to be there Sunday, and is prepared to preach. Moody doesn't know what to do. He's never heard the guy preach, so he talks to his wife, talks to his leadership, and they say, well, we'll let the young little pup have one service, and if he doesn't screw it up, maybe we'll give another one. What made it worse was Moody had to go out of town for a week. So Moody leaves, gives his pulpit to young Henry Morehouse and doesn't know what happened. And he comes back and he asks his wife, how did the young preacher do? And to this, his wife responded, he is a better preacher than you are. (laughs) He is telling sinners that God loves him. You must go hear him. Moody said, what? He's telling sinners that God loves him? That's not true. And she said, well, he's been preaching on John 3.16 all week long. So Moody went down to the church that night and Morehouse stood in the pulpit and began by saying these words. I have been hunting for a text all week and I've not been able to find a better one than John 3.16. So I'll just talk about it once more. To which Moody would write in his diary that that night he saw the greatness of the love of God as he had never seen it before. Say what you will. John 3.16 does tell us the greatest theme of the Bible. God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And so I only have one point. Praise God. I've got one point. The part I need prayer about is I'm splitting it into two, three equal parts. So put your seatbelts on. I read to you John 3, 1 to 21, because I wanted you to get a context, a feel for how 16 fits in there. I don't know if you notice some things, how familiar you are with the gospel of John, but in John 3, 16, it's the first time that the name God has appeared since chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 in John's introduction. From verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1, all up now to chapter 3, the word God has never come up, but it does here in verse 16. Also, it's the only time in John's entire gospel that he actually says that God loves the world. He has never said that prior and will never say it again. Only here does he say God loves the world. And so to help us better understand, Jesus has just given Nicodemus what I call the great illustration in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because Jesus basically told this teacher of the law to be born again or converted or saved or whatever language you've heard of or not heard of. He's basically saying to be that is a direct result of faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection power. But notice back in verse 9. To me, this is the big reason why verse 16 is so important. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? He was an expert in the law. Give me a list to obey. Give me things to do. Give me something to show you I will live up and be worthy. But now you're just telling me I got to be born again? I'm in my 60s, dude. How can I do this? And so verses 16 to 21 is what could be the answer to the question or called the great explanation. 
So in 14 and 15, you've got the great illustration. In 16 to 21, you have the great explanation. But now let me speak to you for a little bit. The only thing tonight, this morning, I hope is a little bit controversial. Because I actually think that John the Apostle writes 16 to 21. I don't believe this is the direct quote of Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Only John ever calls Jesus the only son or the only God. Plus, Jesus never refers to God as God, but always as Father. Further, these verses might sound familiar if you've read John 1, 1 to 18. For instance, world, for God so loved the world, has only been used once since verse 18 of chapter 1. But here in 16 to 21, it's used five times. Plus, we've already seen that John is helping us to understand a sign or things that Jesus has said. And this fits with John's purpose statement. We read it in our call to friendship. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 30, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and result that by believing you may have life in his name. So verses 16 to 21 is the Apostle John providing for his audience with the information that would get this response and call them to action. Now, without a doubt, let me say again, Jesus proclaims this and John explains it. The God is at work once again. Remember I said that some people would say Exodus 20 is the greatest passage of Scripture because that was the giving of the law. God in God came down onto that mountain and, and Moses saw the backside of God and the giving of the law was given. But, but now in John 3.16, God is giving again, motivated by love, and he's giving something much, much better. It's not thou shalt and thou shalt not. It is here is my son Jesus because I love you. Tim Keller puts it like this, truth without love really isn't truth. Love without truth really isn't love. They have to be together. And it's in Jesus Christ that you see this happen. See, John already told us in John chapter 1 that Jesus was the Word. And Jesus himself will tell us in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And John also tells us that Jesus Christ is love. So in Jesus Christ, you have love and truth. But my case today is that no matter what you know or think of John 3.16, it's still better than you can imagine. In fact, I believe you can never get away from John 3.16. You'll always need to come back to it. You'll need to be refreshed by its truth and love. It's the whole Bible and minister, according to Martin Luther. But allow me to break it down. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you for the next 20 minutes or so, no matter where you find yourself in life, No matter if you're here going, Steve, I get it. I'm tracking with you. I know everything you're talking about. No matter if you're here going, Steve, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not very churched. I don't know the lingo. You don't know my life. I don't care what your past is or your present. I don't care if you think your future might or might not be bleak or bright. No matter your church knowledge or your vocabulary, no matter what you already think you know, please, please, please ask God right here and now to speak to you anew about this verse. Listen to me, folks. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. So, number one, I want you to see God's amazing love. My grandfather said it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. John 3.16 is a declaration of God's amazing love. 
The opening words of John 3.16 stress not only the intensity of God's love, but also the greatness of it because its gift is Jesus Christ. With unspeakable intensity, God loves you. You know how hard it is in my human form? How do I describe the way an infinite God loves you? How can I do it? But more than that, we must be careful not to fall into the trap of defining and applying love in that cheap romantic way that Hollywood has explained it to us. In spite of you, for some of you that are younger, La La Land is not the authority on love. You see, God is love. It's not that God does something and we hope it's loving. Everything he is and everything he does is love. And you can't uphold one of his attributes against another. So as I stated earlier, this might well be the most popular verse in the Bible, but it's also one of the most misunderstood ones too. For you and I must see what God is not saying. In John 3.16, Jesus is not a way, but the way. God doesn't offer us options for a savior. God doesn't say, I've got a few precious ways that you can try and be okay. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. He did not love the world so much that he sent multiple saviors. Yet our culture tells us that if God were really loving, he would have provided avatars galore. He would have provided a smorgasbord of salvation options so that everyone can practice his or her own religion and he would not have been so narrow-minded and exclusive as to require faith in Christ alone. This was the attack of Bernie Sanders just a few weeks ago when he stood in a government building and said, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to, to heaven, then you're not fit for public office. That's what you need to understand. Doesn't the Bible say that God loved the world? Yes. The Bible says that he loved the world, but how much did he love the world? He loved it enough to send his one and only son. And so we must understand as we come to John 3.16, God's love is also joined to all of him. See, you can't pick and choose what you like about God and what you don't. But let's be honest. When I talk about God so loved the world, that's a pleasant thing to think about. But if I said, but God so is holy... Now we get a bit of the heebie-jeebies because the holiness of God wigs us out a little bit because that's the look into perfection. Isaiah 6, right? When, the, when Uzziah has that vision and he's in the throne room and God was there and the angels and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But I want you to understand that God is lovingly holy. He's lovingly holy. He loves us in a holy way. Why? Because God is holy. But also, God is almighty. Romans 8.35 boldly asks us this question. Who can separate us from the love of God? I wish I could get every Christian to get up in the morning, ask that question, and answer it. Who can separate us from the love of God? Right? Verse, the answer comes in 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, church, understand, you are loved by an almightyly loving God. That would have been a great way for someone to be Pentecostal here this morning. And not only is he lovingly holy, not only is he lovingly almighty, God is also lovingly unchangeable. God's love is unchangeable. John Owen writes, Though we change every day, 
yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It is because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, we would perish. So for God so loved the world is because he has a holy love and it's an almighty love and it's an unchangeable love. But wait, there's more. It's better than every infomercial. God is also eternal. So God is lovingly eternal. So God's love is eternal. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said that God chose us before the foundations of the world. So before God ever said in Genesis, let there be light, he loved us. Ephesians 2 says he loves us with a great love. Chapter 3, God's love is unfathomable. But listen to Jeremiah when he says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Isaiah says, quotes God in Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. (laughs) So it's a holy love. It's an almighty love. It's an unchanging love. It's an eternal love. But you know what? God's love is lovingly. God is lovingly sovereign. He is sovereignly loving. That means he chose us. We didn't choose him. He loved us as unlovable. Do you know what Romans 5, 8 says? And now do you mean, but God commendeth, God poured out his love. God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See church, we got to stop telling the world, clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. No, no, this church should be the greatest, safest hospital on the planet. You come just as you are to Jesus because he sovereignly loves us. In John 13 through 16, Jesus himself would say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I didn't call you servants, I called you friends. Listen to Jehovah God, Yahweh, what he says to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And notice these words. And redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is what God's love has done. And finally, but not at all exhaustively, God is also lovingly infinite. (laughs) Our verse says that God so loved the world. Now let that sink in. God loves us because he chooses to delight in us. He simply loves us, not for who we are, not for what we've done or what we can do, not for what we haven't done or what we've broken. God doesn't love us because we're sinners like he pities us. God doesn't love us because we'll give him glory. He doesn't love us because there's anything in it for him in the sense of what he can get. He loves us because he loves us. He's amazing. How do you come to the end of infinite love? Do you understand that's the glories of heaven? We have cheapened heaven. We make it sound like when we get there, we're going to wear white robes and sing with Gregorian chant, and we're going to all be experts on the harp. If that's heaven, that's pathetically boring to me. Do you realize that what makes him God and us not is when we get to heaven, you will spend eternity and never know him completely. 
His love is infinite. Every moment of your eternal destiny is bound up in discovering new depths of God's love. And that's why I believe that F.M. Lehman's great hymn, The Love of God, is still, in my opinion, the greatest standard of human expression. In it, interestingly, the last verse of this hymn was not written by Lehman, but he found it in an insane asylum next to the bed of a man who had evidently found the Lord before he passed away. Listen to these words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Now notice this, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Here is the words of this man in the insane asylum. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God. <laughs> Church, are you starting to just get a glimpse of the love of God for you? That's why I'm telling you, this verse is greater than you could ever imagine. Only Jesus is given to us by God in human flesh. Jesus lived perfectly, and he died innocently, and he rose victoriously, and he reigns eternally. And only the gospel, only true Christianity, offers Jesus to anyone and everyone. All peoples, all languages, all types, all pasts, all sinners. Which is why we must see that not only is God loving But number two, God's love is a giving love. God's love is a giving love. You see, He is the holy, almighty, unchangeable, eternal, sovereign, infinite God who pours out His love, but He does it by giving us something. God's love is not just some abstract love, some floating idea filled with emotion and cheesy expressions. You know what it's like. Mostly, regrettably, and tragically, too many women have had these things rehearsed on them by doofus dudes. Honey, I love you to the moon and back. What the heck? Right? Honey, I love you so much I'd die for you. Of which most married women would say, great, would you just love me enough to take out the trash for me? (laughs) See, God's love is a vast, unbounded, bottomless sea. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not simply God is love, but God so loved that he gave. That is what lies at the root of this new birth. Nicodemus, do you want to understand how this can be? It's through the overflowing, unbounded love of God. God's love is a giving love, and the gift is Jesus Christ. But let's make sure we even understand what we mean by the word love. Because the Greek language actually has four words for love. See, we, our language, we've got one word, love. And I say, I love ice cream and I love Debbie. And it's up to you, the hearers, to go, well, I think that means he loves Debbie more than he loves ice cream. But see, in Greek, you had specific words. The first one is called storgi, which is family love. It's the word you would use for love of husband or wife or love for son and daughter or sibling love. The next one is called eros, where we get our English word erotic This is sexual or romantic love. Then there's that word called phileo or phileos. That's the love of attraction or friendship. But there's something that all three of these words have in common. They are words that have to do with receiving. 
They're based on what we get from someone or how good someone makes us feel. It's always a receiving. But there's another word. It's the word agape. That's a giving love. It's not based on what we get or how we feel. You see, God doesn't get a thing from, nor does He need anything from us. He just loves us. And to prove it, He gives without obligation to us who are unworthy. You want to know the definition of grace? Grace is an unobligated giver to someone who doesn't deserve what they're getting. So God is unobligated. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't need anything from us. And he says, but I love them. I choose to love them. I choose to lavish my love on them. And so he gives us his most precious and dear gift, his one and only son. And nothing or no one could represent God better. Nothing is more precious. No one could be more intimately valued. The most amazing, most precious thing that God could offer, the only one who could be offered, God gives to you and me. And why? Because God loves us. John 3, 16, God so loved. Literally, it would read, in this way, God so loved. And it shows his intensity and the manner of that love. It's not just words. It's not some token. No, he says, here's my son. Here's the greatest thing I can give you. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a mom or a dad and you've got parents, your grandparents, you know how much you love them. But as John Flavel writes, who would part with a son for the sake of his dearest friend? But God gave him too and delivered him for enemies. Oh, love unspeakable. J.C. Ryle said, the gift of Christ is the result of God's love to the world and not the cause. To say that God loves us because Jesus died for us is wretched theology. But to say that Christ came into the world in consequence of the love of God is scriptural truth. So God doesn't love us because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves us. That's a massive difference. So God's giving love. Jesus is the reason that we can be forgiven and born again. Are you getting this yet? Somebody smile at me. All right? I'm sweating up here. I'm working really hard to try and get somebody excited. This is what Jesus was explaining in this great illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. God gave and Jesus himself agreed. 39 times in John's gospel, Jesus says, the Father sent me. The Father sent me. The Father sent me. Again, listen to J.C. Ryle. Christ is God the Father's gift to a lost and sinful world. He was given generally to be the Savior, the Redeemer, the friend of sinners. Why? To make an atonement sufficient for all and to provide a redemption large enough for all and to effect this. The Father freely gave Him up to be despised and rejected and mocked and crucified and counted guilty and accursed for our sakes. God's loving gift is not just from our holy, almighty, unchangeable, infinite, sovereign, eternal, loving God. Jesus is not just the perfect or unspeakable gift, but Jesus is the gift most suited for our biggest need, our sin. Jesus was given to die for us so that we can be forgiven. Jeremiah Burrow said, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men perish eternally, He would send His Son 
to take our nature upon him and suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows love. It pleased the Father, that's Isaiah 53, to break his son and to pour out his blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing, infectious meditation this should be for us. Oh, that you would think about the love of God every day. When you are tempted by sin, think about the love of Jesus. When you fail, think about the love of Jesus. When you succeed, think about the love of Jesus. During World War I, I have learned so much from Eugene about Newfoundland history. And back on July 1st, we celebrated not only Canada Day, but for us in Newfoundland, it was the Battle of Beaumont Hamill, where Newfoundland lost many of its sons. One of a million stories of World War I is of a young man, a young English man and his son out for a walk. And the little fellow noticed that the many homes in his neighborhood had stars in their windows and he asked his dad why. And his dad said to him, son, this is because and to remind us of the terrible price of war. Those stars tell us that these people have lost a son to the war. war. And so they walked in that profound silence as a father and son will do. And for some time the little boy was just very quiet and sober. And then he looked into the night sky and he exploded. Daddy, look at the stars. God must have given a son too. And the answer is yes. God gave us his son, his one and only son in the war against evil, our evil, our sin. God who didn't have to dealt with our sin by giving Jesus his son for us. Behold his love. God's love is the gift of his son given to any and all who will truly believe and that's our final stopping point. God's love is something you must believe in. God's love is amazing. God's love is giving. But listen to me, men and women and ladies and gentlemen. God's love is something you've got to believe in. Remember, he says, what is the purpose of God's amazing love? Why would God lovingly give Jesus to us? So that we might believe that whosoever believes. And herein lies the greatest debate and misunderstanding of John 3.16. We talk about the Bible being so simple that anybody can understand it and so deep that men will never come to the end of it. And that's true, but we must also understand that what we mean when we say a child, so simple a child can understand. So let me, under, let me help you understand. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is saving faith? What does it mean to be born again? Number one, you must have knowledge of Jesus. You must know about Jesus. Our final song today will be called The Creed. It's written by Hillsong. It says this, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Spirit, the three in one. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he lived and he died. You've got to know about him. We're going to sing about this. It's based on the knowledge of Jesus. But once you have knowledge, number two, you must give assent to Jesus. That's admitting that the truth is, the knowledge is truth. So you go from, okay, I know about Jesus and what I know is now true. So you must believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. You've got to believe that it's true that Jesus died and rose from the dead. This is what John 20, 30, and 31 is all about. These things I wrote that you might believe. You can't cherry pick. Well, I believe Jesus was God, but I don't really believe he rose from the dead. Then you don't believe. 
You've got knowledge, but not a sin. But then, you can, number three, you must trust in Jesus. And this is the heart of confusion. Too many people, even people in Christendom, in churches, in St. John's, are more than, they're, they're fine with f- filing or feeling to acknowledge that Jesus existed, and they even like Him and what He offers. I mean, who doesn't want to live forever in heaven, Right? Most even have knowledge of Jesus. That's folks have heard of Jesus and they like what they've heard. But liking Jesus and admiring him and wanting what he offered and even wanting some of the stuff he wanted, like peace on earth, is totally different from trusting in him. Now think about this as I read Proverbs 3. This is what Solomon means. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the positive action. Here's the negative one. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's the result? And he will make straight your paths. Here's the challenge. Be not wise in your own eyes. So what are you supposed to do? Fear the Lord. Now notice this, and turn away from evil. So do you and I trust God's love in the form of his one and only son to order our lives according to his ways? (laughs) Now we're getting serious. Now we're taking some of the polish off of the emotion of love, right? Richard Phillips says, some people think that believing in Jesus means nothing more than giving assent. They hang their hopes for heaven on this slender reed. Sure, I believe in Jesus. They mean they believe he exists, at least some of what the Bible says about him. They believe in Jesus the way a child believes in Santa Claus. It's simply the legend that they were brought up on. But you have to understand that that phrase, whosoever believes in him. Do you realize that its Hebrew counterpart is actually the word amen. It's where we get the word amen. And by that we mean to firmly hold or establish. This verse is speaking to those who will give their amen to Jesus. It's calling folks to give their amen to Jesus. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Why? Because he's trustworthy. In a world and time where we don't trust anyone, you can and must trust Jesus. That's why. Does God care who I sleep with? Yes. Not because he's an ogre trying to pour water on my parade of fun. Because he knows what's best for me. And do I trust him? So whether it's ethics and business or sexual identity or how you do your taxes or how you raise your kids or how you are as an employer or an employee, if you love Jesus, if you've experienced the love of God, it changes you. And you trust him. I've said this before. God loves you just as you are. But he loves you so much that he never leaves you as you are. God loves, God's love changes us because we trust his gift, Jesus Christ. You see, in Mark, the rich young ruler didn't. What did he say? Rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? See what he wanted? He wanted to live forever with his stuff. He didn't really want Jesus. And so when Jesus called him out on his love of money, What did he say? Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. What was the reaction of the rich young ruler? He went away sad for he had much riches. Because his savior was money. But what about in Matthew 13? The guy who finds the pearl of great price in that plot of land. And Jesus says that when he finds it, he goes and he sells everything that he has to go buy buy that land. Why? Because he understands. I don't care if I got to liquidate everything. I will give up everything if it means I get Jesus. Because that's more valuable to me. And again, our our Kent Hughes, I believe, gives us this greatest thing. Let me give you this, and then I'm going to close. God 
the greatest lover so loved the greatest degree the world the greatest company that he gave the greatest act his only son the greatest gift that whosoever the greatest opportunity believes the greatest simplicity in him the greatest attraction should not perish the greatest promise but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty eternal life the greatest possession is there anything better than the love of Jesus for us and so as I close I just have some questions if you're here this morning as a Christian can I ask you this we live in a city that's only 1% evangelical for our visitors that are not from here you are in one of the most unevangelized cities in this country so let me ask you Christians if God so loves the lives and souls of men and women do we has God's love for us given us a love for others Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. John Stott said, Nothing in the non-Christian religions compares with this message of God who loved, came after, and died for lost sinners. Are you and I urgent and passionate for men and women in this city to know Jesus, including your enemies? those who don't deserve it. Because it's through our witness and our transformed life, our words and our actions, it's because we'll take an interest in others, those we like and those we don't like. Why? Because ours is a love that tries to imitate God's love. Calvary Baptist Church, the church, the love of God is not something to hide or be ashamed of. Paul shouts out in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. We don't hoard the love of God to ourselves. Why? Because God's love is amazing. Don't be embarrassed by God's love. Love is what Jesus was already humiliated for us. So why don't we start showing people Jesus? Number two, if God has already given his most precious gift, then what else wouldn't he give us? Do you really think, Christian, that God is not going to give you the strength to be a testimony if he's already given you his son? You don't think God will give you the ability to overcome besetting sin if he hasn't already given you his son? You don't think he will give you strength and peace in the face of, of a, uh, undying adversity? I have friends here from Prince Edward Island. I awoke this morning to a lady sending me a note that her mother just died. And her words to me were, in the love of Jesus I stand. Because that's what Christ gives us. You don't think the love of Jesus that gave his son won't give you hope in your marriage or hope with your kids or hope with your job or hope with your finances or with your addiction or with your struggle with whatever it might be listen to Romans 8 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things to any of you here that don't know Jesus 
If God has given us his most precious gift, then what does rejecting Jesus really say and mean? When I get back at the end of this summer, I'll preach verses 17 to 21. But remember verse 18. Those who don't believe are condemned already. You see, I love how the world imitates the Bible. We have a fascination in the 21st century with zombies. The walking dead. Fear the walking dead. Countless Even Abraham Lincoln apparently was a zombie at some point. How stupid is that? But do you realize to be an unbelieving sinner is to be the walking dead? It is to be alive and yet dead. God calls us with his love because of Jesus Christ, his son, to reject it. So Kent Hughes says, we must give up our dependence on ourselves or our cleverness or our, our self-improvement, our plans of becoming religious and just look to him. Isaiah 45, 22 says, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no one other. And finally, if God so loves us that he gave us his son, then how are we loving him in return? My greatest blessing was preparing this sermon. My greatest challenge was preparing this sermon because I discovered anew, man, am I loved by God. And so are you. Let it marinate into your heart and soul and mind and respond to the love of Jesus. And it will change your life. This I believe. Let's close in prayer. Father God, again, I beg of you that my friends and my family, my church family, would have heard a better sermon than I am able to preach. I pray that our visitors have been both challenged and encouraged, inspired and instructed. I pray that as we now close singing this beautiful anthem of the knowledge of God, that we will give true assent that it is true and that, Father, we will believe. Oh, my God and my Savior, my Father and my Lord, help me and others here to know what it is to be loved by Jesus. To stop pretending. To stop trying to cling to things that rob us of love and only promise temporary pleasure and trust Jesus with our lives. I believe. Oh God, help others here to believe with me. And would you work in this city? Oh, may people in this city have heard the gospel this morning. And Lord, as a reward for the suffering of your son, may people in this city have come to Jesus. And would you do it here too? In Jesus' name and all God's people said.